The epistle for the first Sunday in Lent is from James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel in St. Mark, the first chapter. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Where Adam and Eve failed the test of temptation in the garden, where the people of Israel failed the test in the wilderness, our Lord Jesus Christ does not fail. He defeats the devil. The setting of the temptation is we see right after his baptism, he is set out immediately, it says, driven out by the Holy Spirit, that he might go to the war on the devil's turf with Satan. And this is a far cry from the perfect world that Adam and Eve had in the garden. And yet I want us to go back to that, because what happened there is the setup for what happens to Jesus in the wilderness. The garden, indeed, was perfect. God had planted this garden sanctuary on the top of this mountain in the land of Eden. He had planted the trees, we are told, himself in this garden for Adam and Eve. There's only one thing they could not eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were, if you will, too fast from it for a time. And Adam's duty was very clear. 
He was to guard and keep the garden. That's what he was given to do. And yet Satan, this angelic being who has turned on his master, is there full of lies. Sometimes we miss it, but Adam is standing with Eve when Eve is tempted. That's where he's at. And rather than protecting, he lets it unfold. And Satan comes and he is a deceiver. The Bible tells us he's a liar from the beginning. And he is this beautiful angel. He disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive those who he's lying to. And from the beginning, he casts doubt on two things that he's still casting doubt on today. He casts doubt on God's word. Did God really say? Is that really what he said? And he casts doubt on your identity as God's child. Think about it. We could reword what he says to Adam and Eve a little bit to get the point across. Why is God being so cruel to you? Why won't he let you eat from that tree? Is it because he's withholding something great from you? you? You would be like him. Your eyes would be open. You would know good and evil. You would be just like God. I can't believe he's kept that back from you. Nothing's changed. How does the devil attack you? He tells you, does God really say that? Does he really command this? Does he really forbid that? If you're God's child, why doesn't he give you all these things that you think you need to be happy? Why hasn't he done this for you? Why won't he let you have this thing? Why is he telling you not to do this? And on and on it goes. Satan's always putting God on trial. Whether it's his word, whether it's the way he's treated you, His temptations come in the form of putting God on trial. And their sin is no different than ours. What was their sin? Their sin at its core was a lack of faith. They doubted God's word to them. They really began to wonder, did God really say? And so they took from the tree and ate. They were not satisfied with the word that God had given them. And so too it is for us. Why do we give in to sin? At its core, it's always a first commandment issue. We don't fully fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And that lack of trust gets us into all kinds of trouble. We're not satisfied with his word. So when Satan attacks it, it makes it easier for him to steal it from us. It's interesting, too, because even in the garden, this worked. Satan knows that people are longing for three things. You can at least summarize it as three things. Everybody wants life, right? They want a good life. They want a certain quality of life. They want to be healthy and happy. Everybody wants glory. They want some amount of money fame, power, whatever it is, whatever that looks like for them. 
Everyone wants to be in the know. They want to have knowledge. Now, it may look different for individuals and groups, but if you look out at the world, you'll notice something. Every false religion offers these things to people. They offer them apart from the one true God. Interesting, because when Satan says, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, that phrase trips people up because it's like a little confusing. But the point is, Adam and Eve were to wait to eat from that tree because God had told them, you're not ready for this yet. A time will come when you will be mature enough and you can eat from it and to have their eyes open to know good and evil meant that they would be mature enough to judge wisely as God wanted them to judge as king and queen of the earth. But they desired that glory and that knowledge apart from God's timing. So they took it in their own way, in their own time. And we still do the same today. We try to get these things apart from God's plan, apart from God's word, apart from God's good gift of them in his good time to us, when he knows it's best for us. We indeed, in Christ, have life, glory, and knowledge, but it's not always the kind that we want or are seeking. In James chapter 1, we're warned about the growth of sin. He tells us that when we're being tempted, we can't say we're being tempted by God. God doesn't tempt anyone. He tests. That is, he does things to strengthen our faith, but he never tempts us. Temptations are to get us to sin, to destroy our faith. He never does that. And he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Because of Adam and Eve's fall, since then, all of us have been born with a sinful nature. And because of that sinful nature, we have evil lusts and desires for the wrong things. And James tells us that what happens is we're tempted outwardly by something, and inwardly we desire that thing. And as we follow that desire and give in to that desire, we sin. And then sin, ultimately, if we let it rule and reign, will consume us and bring forth death. Luther puts the stages this way. He says it starts with our unbelief, which leads to disobedience, which leads to things like fear and hatred, avoiding God, more on that in a moment, and if left unconfessed, despair, thinking there's no hope for us. And that despair often leads to impenitence, an unwillingness to repent of that sin. The thing is, and I don't mean this in a joking way, sin makes us stupid. It really, truly does. Because what happens is when we sin, like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, we try to hide, we try to cover it up. We try to avoid God, and we try to avoid him in the dumbest ways possible, thinking it might actually work. We keep fleeing from him because in our minds, we've made God out to be the monster, the bad guy. 
because of our sin. If you've ever caught a little child in sin, and there's evidence on them and all around them that they've done this thing, they will look you right in the face, and they will say, I didn't do it. They won't even think twice about it. They'll look you and say, that wasn't me. They might even blame their sibling, who's out of the room. But it wasn't them. And we as adults, we look at that and we think, that's ridiculous. Why would they even think that's going to work? Right, but why do you think it's going to work with God? Why do you think your attempts to hide it are going to work with him? Our Lord comes into the garden saying, where are you? More on why he does that in a moment. But perhaps it's a question we should ponder tonight. Where are you? Have you alienated yourself from God because of your sin? Are you holding back from him and others trying to hide your sin? Are you scared that your sin is going to be found out? You see, God comes asking, where are you? Because it's a law question meant to bring about repentance. He wants Adam and Eve to come out and say, we're right here. It's not that God didn't know where they were at. He wants them to fess up. He wants them to acknowledge their sin. It's the same thing God does with David. When David's committed adultery and murder, covered up his sin, what does God do? David's sitting there, completely unrepentant. He's abandoned the faith. And God sends Nathan to him. Nathan the prophet. Why? He's seeking out his lost king. God does the same to us. He comes to us and he asks these questions. Where are you? Why have you done this? He does it because he wants us to fess up. Our theme of Wednesday evening, to confess our sins that we might receive forgiveness. And then it's God himself who provides the sacrifice. Remember, after Adam and Eve are punished, what does the Lord do for them? He offers up a sacrifice and covers up their nakedness. That's what he does for us. He offers up his son as a sacrifice. And before his son is offered up as a sacrifice, Jesus goes into the wilderness, to the devil's domain, and he battles him. The Bible calls him the second Adam. Because he steps into Adam's place as a representation of humanity. Except for instead of giving in to sin, he conquers the devil. He is Israel reduced to one person. And where Israel fell in the wilderness, Jesus is victorious. He steps out there in our place and he defeats the devil. He doesn't give in to sin one bit. He wins the battle. It's interesting because Matthew and Luke give us a much longer version of this. Mark sums it up in a sentence, as he's often wont to do to give us something really compact. It just says, basically, he was tempted. And the angels ministered to him. And then he goes out and preaches. Jesus wins the battle for us. I want to connect that to how he helps us in our temptation. We've already seen that we're tempted in various ways and we're not so great at 
resisting temptation, we often give in. But our Lord gives us some gifts that are especially focused on in Lent that can help us in this battle. But they really only help us if they're connected to the Word of God and to His holy sacraments. And those three traditional weapons we talk about in Lent are fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. Right? Our Lord fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights before being tempted. And we get to have a whole sermon just on fasting. Tonight, all I want to say is this. At its core, the point of fasting is that you might be humbled. That's its biggest point. It's hard. If you've ever really tried to fast and really done it, whether food or from some particular thing you're struggling with, keeping control over your time, as I told the kids recently in class, social media would be a great thing to fast from during Lent. But as you struggle and you realize how weak you are for that thing, it humbles you. I remember one time tell me, at my church in Pagosa, she said, I, I hate this fasting, it's so hard, I'm so weak. And I said, that's the point. It's actually why you fast. To realize your weakness that you might learn all the more to depend on Christ. That's why just giving up something for Lent, divorce from prayer, divorce from word and sacraments, honestly is kind of pointless. The point of the fasting is to drive us to Christ. In prayer. That's why these three always went together. Fasting, prayer, almsgiving. You fast and you use that time to pray. To rely on Jesus. To be in his word. Then either the money you saved or the time you saved can go towards helping those who are hurting. That was the point of those things. They're never in and of themselves. Lots of people fast for all kinds of reasons. We fast that we might humble ourselves before our Lord and learn to rely on him all the more. That we might learn to cling to Jesus when it's hard, when it's difficult. These are weapons for training us, for preparing us for the attacks of the devil. My favorite image of the kind of battle we're doing daily is you're always feeding one of two fires. If you picture in your heart you have two fires. One is your sinful flesh, the other is the new man. And what you do throughout the day is either feeding the sinful flesh or feeding the new man. You want to starve and douse out the fire of your sinful flesh. And things like fasting and prayer and almsgiving, when connected to the word of God and his holy sacraments, can help us do that. And as we receive the word, as we receive God's gifts, the new man is fed and strengthened. But that's a daily battle to keep one fire under control and let the other get bigger. Jesus goes into the wilderness and he is victorious. He's victorious over temptation over the attacks of the devil. That way he might offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice, free from sin, and be victorious over suffering, death, hell, and the devil himself. So the Bible says that in him, 
We're more than conquerors. We are super conquerors, it says. We're victorious in Jesus. That doesn't mean that you're going to walk out of here tonight and be like, well, I heard a sermon on temptation. I'm not going to fall into sin anymore. It's not going to happen. We fight against that, but when we fall, we repent and we cling to the one who has conquered, who has defeated the devil, who's already won the battle. So as you go forth into your own wilderness this week, go forth not in your own strength. Trust in the one who equips you and trains you with his gifts that he gives. Rely on Jesus. Know that he has fought and is fighting for you. Cling to him. Humble yourself that you might continue to learn from him. But more importantly, trust in him in the midst of these battles. Amen. The peace of God passes all understanding and guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.